You know, it's amazing that this uh, conversation between two members of the Trinity, God the Son talking to God the Father, has such profound impacts uh, and touches into such relevant pieces of our everyday, ordinary life together as a church. You know, let me uh, give you three scenarios uh, that may play out in any given ordinary week in the life of our church. A young woman uh, gets up early on a Monday morning. She sits down, uh, she wakes up at some unholy hour uh, to try to have just a moment of sanity before the children wake up and it's a rush to school or to work. She brews a much-needed cup of coffee. She sits down, opens uh, her daily prayer and Bible reading, and sits down to pray and to read the scriptures to, to try to converse with God. And in that moment, uh, what felt so real on Sunday morning feels just a million miles away uh, on Monday morning. God seems distant. The old doubts that have plagued her for many years come back where she says, you know what, I'm talking, but honestly, I'm not sure if anybody's listening. She's pretty convinced there's a God, but is unclear on whether or not he's interested in her or listens to her or loves her or cares about the stuff of her life. A little later that week, let's say on a mid-morning on a Tuesday, another woman sits in her car outside of Pinedale Elementary School where she perhaps foolishly has committed uh, to show up every week to tutor uh, young elementary school students. And as the weeks have gone on, her heart has grown heavy. Uh, she's gotten to know these students, and as she feels the weight of their home life, as she feels the aching distance between her life and theirs, and so she sits in her car giving herself a pep talk, perhaps for an embarrassingly long time, that what she's about to go do makes a difference, hoping against hope that God will somehow use it in the life of a child, in the life of a school. And so she goes in faith and in hope. Two other members uh, of our church, uh, one white, one African-American, sit down in a conversation that starts innocently enough about current events, stumbles into politics, stumbles into perhaps uh, the latest flashpoint uh, in our nation's uh, divided history over racial politics. And it becomes clear that these two men, although one in Christ, although one in church, have shared such vastly different experiences of the world, have learned such different things about the world, have come to such different conclusions about the world, that things get tense. Conversations get awkward. It gets difficult to bridge that gap. And they both think to themselves, although they don't say it out loud, you know what, honestly, it would just be easier. It would just be so much easier if I was in a church with people that thought like I did if I was with people who'd had the same experiences I had had. Maybe I should just try to go elsewhere. Three ordinary experiences, three experiences that happen as Christians try to do life together in this church. Some of them seem very ordinary, very pedestrian. Some of them may make you even just hearing it feel awkward. And yet those very concerns are brought into this conversation between the Father and the Son, the Son and the Father. Because what Jesus does in this moment, in this prayer, is he ties those ordinary struggles of faith into a story with its roots in the Trinity, with its roots beyond eternity past, roots the concerns of our lives in this eternal plan of the Trinity to reconcile us to God, and to reconcile us to one another. The great hope 
of this passage is that we are brought, sinners though we are, into the life and mission of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So first, let's look at how we are brought into the life of the Trinity. It's pretty amazing. There's only a few places in the scriptures where we get an invitation to eavesdrop on a conversation between two members of the Trinity. Right Here's God the Son talking to God the Father on the eve of his crucifixion. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to be a fly on the wall in some of history's great moments, you know, maybe hearing uh, Churchill and Roosevelt talk before they planned the D-Day invasion or some other monumental moment in history, those things would pale in comparison to the deity, God the Son, bringing his concerns to God the Father on the eve of his crucifixion. And what's on the Son's mind in this moment? He begins in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. He's bringing up this concern that the Son and the Father would glorify one another in what's to come in the cross, in this darkest of days, Good Friday. And in this, we see something that's true of the Trinitarian life from eternity past, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit live to glorify one another, live to to trade glory with one another. Later uh, in the prayer, Jesus is going to talk about the, the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit as one of love. That the Father, Son, and Spirit, before there was a universe, before there was matter, before there was anything created, there was Father, Son, and Spirit giving glory and love towards one another. What does it mean to glorify someone or something? It simply means to exchange love, respect, honor, to be willing to say in the face of the other, I want to be less, I want to think less of myself, take a lower posture, so that you could be maximized, so that I could think more of you, so that I could give honor to you. Right, if selfishness, which is, if we're honest, where most of us live most of our lives, is the demand that others bow to us, that others move around us, that others accommodate us. To give glory is to say, no, I'm going to bow before you. I'm going to let you, I'm going to move around you, not demand that you move around me. And so, Father, Son, and Spirit have been doing this dance with one another from eternity, deferring to one another, loving one another, honoring one another. Some of the early Greek church fathers gave a word to this inner life of the Trinity. They called it perichoresis, uh, which in Greek just literally means to dance around. Uh, Choriasis uh, is where we get choreography, dance. That here, they describe the life of the Trinity as, as this dance between three persons moving in and out of one another in perfect harmony, perfect love. C.S. Lewis referred to that dance of the Trinity as the primordial fountain of life out of which all other life came to be. Manhattan pastor Tim Keller in his book Reason for God uh, put it this way. He says, The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. That creates a dance, particularly if there's three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible tells us, 
Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. And that creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of love and joy. And so, with that picture, that picture of perfect harmony, perfect joy, that's beautiful. But what's more beautiful, what's more beautiful is that here on the cross, the reason Jesus is heading to the cross is for a very particular purpose. It's not simply to continue to delight and love and honor the Father. It's so that you and I can be gathered in to that Trinitarian dance. So that into that love and union and communion that God the Father, Son, and Spirit share, that we, estranged by our sin, might actually be brought in with them into that life of love and union. Verse 18, uh, Jesus prays that they may all, uh, excuse me, hold on, wrong verse, excuse me, backing up. 23, Jesus says that that you have loved them even as you love me. In verse 3, he says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Right? The purpose of his coming is that we might know God, that we might know God the Father and know God the Son and know God the Spirit. Not just know about God, right? not just know things about God, but might actually know God in a real, intimate, human, not knowing, an experiential knowing that we uh, would know God who loves us. And this is actually the, 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 the force that moves the plot of the Bible along, is God's desire to gather men and women back to himself. From that first day in the garden after Adam's sin, when Adam and Eve were estranged from God, and God goes into the garden looking for Adam, saying, Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? That that marks the beginning of a pursuit that actually drives the subsequent pages of the Bible forward from the Garden of Eden all the way through to the the book of Revelation is this quest of God, a primordial quest of God to gather us back to himself so that we could really and truly know the love of God, so that we could know the love of the Trinity. This probably does come to the forefront of this particular passage. In verse 23, when Jesus, uh, God the Son, says to the Father, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you loved me. Wow. Really, think about, let that sink in for just a moment. That you have loved them, that God the Father has loved them, my followers, in the same way that you have loved me, the Son. That is, that is amazing. Think about the way that the Father loves the Son. Think about the scene at Jesus' baptism. When the heavens open, right, and the Spirit descends, and a voice from heaven rings out, this is my Son. In Him I am well pleased. Right, it is a staggeringly amount of good, staggeringly good news 
to believe that here in this life, you could hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved child, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, and in him and in her, I am well pleased. Right? Most of us live our lives with a kind of insecurity that drives us for the belief that maybe someday when we die, we'll stand before God the judge and we'll find out in that moment whether or not he's pleased with us. Whether or not in the, in the math of our love, the moral math that we do in our lives, whether the good has outweighed the bad. Whether we've helped more people than we've hurt, whether we've prayed more often than we've lived selfishly. And so we head towards judgment day with this kind of nervous hoping that it'll be good enough. And yet here Jesus says, no, no, no. When they are in me, God the Father delights in them absolutely just as much and just as certainly as he does in me. You can, in Christ, know in advance the verdict of that day, that here and now in this day, you are God's beloved child. And in, in you, he is well, well pleased. This is the, the fact at the center of the Christian life, of what it means to be a Christian. The belief that God loves, accepts, and delights in us, not because of what we do, not because of our goodness, but solely because of his delight in his son and his acceptance of his son's life, his son's death on our behalf. And that is incredibly good news, and it's incredibly difficult news to actually believe. Right, many of us, uh, you know, I think if you've been around the church long enough, you probably have at some point had someone ask you, maybe even if you've just been, lived in the South and bumped into church people, you've, you've had someone ask you the following question. Dave, if you were to die tonight, it's always tonight, right? Accidents happen at night. If you were to die tonight and you were to appear before a holy God and he were to ask you, why should I invite you into heaven? What would you say? Right, and of course, the right answer, an answer that, that rightly discerns kind of what your basis is for your relationship with God is only because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Most of us can give the Sunday school answer for that. Here's a question that in my life is much, much harder to answer. Dave, what does God think about you right now? In light of the time you lost your temper with your son this morning, uh, in light of the selfish, greedy, prideful person that you are, in light of the fact that you haven't read your Bible reliably in about a week, how does God feel about you right now and why? And the answer is God delights in you because he delights in his son. Not because of what you've done, but because of his delight in his son. The evangelist Tony Campolo put it this way. He said, do you believe that God feels about you like a doting father? He said that God, do you think that God has your picture in his wallet? Which now requires, of course, the transition. Do you believe that God has your picture in his smartphone? Right? Since we don't carry wallets anymore. That, that your picture is there. That God hangs your crummy artwork on his refrigerator. Uh, because he is as proud of you as you are in any of your earthly children, that God loves you. That kind of love, when you feel it, is an invitation to the dance that Father, Son, and Spirit have been engaged in for eternity. That's what the Spirit is. That's, what, that's who the Spirit is. That the Spirit is God the Trinity, 
living in you and drawing you into that dance with the Father and the Son. Does the Christian life feel like a dance to you? You know, maybe you've been standing on the outside of the dance for a long time, like, like awkward middle school Dave standing on the sideline of the dance while everybody else dances and has a good time. You've been standing on the outside watching. Or maybe, to use a biblical metaphor, you're the, the older son in the prodigal son narrative. When the father welcomes the younger son home and kills the fatted calf and throws a party, and what does the older son do? He sits outside and sulks. Right? Let this be the invitation that God the Father, Son, and Spirit invite you into a life of dancing joy with them. Accept the invitation. Come and join their life and their joy. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, but honestly, the Christian life feels like anything but a dance of joy. Right? If, you know, I, I recently had someone uh, share with me a song that, had, that meant a great deal to them, and they wanted me to come to know this song. And so I was online. I couldn't, I couldn't listen to it at the time, but I Googled it, you know, look, looked at the lyrics. And in reading the lyrics, you go, I don't really get it. Right? I, hear, I, I can read the lyrics. I can, I can see what they're saying. But oftentimes, if you're getting to know a song, just reading the lyrics, you can get them in your mind, but it doesn't move you. It's when the lyrics are joined to the music and they're sung that it starts to move your body, that it starts to move your heart. And for many of us, the Christian life has been a matter of simply knowing the lyrics, right? Knowing the words, knowing what's true, knowing, how to, knowing what to believe, how to order the doctrines. But the music of the gospel hasn't moved you to dance. And the music that moves you to dance is this news that as you have loved me, Father, so you love them. Join the dance. Join the life of the Trinity. Well, that would certainly be good enough news. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, not only are my followers included in the life of the Trinity, but they're actually included in the mission of the Trinity. That, that, that primordial push from the heart of God to gather his children to himself through the Son and the Spirit. He actually says, no, no, you're not just gathered in, but you're then included in that very mission. Look at what he says in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Right, if, if it's true that in Christ God has gathered us to himself, why doesn't he then just take us home to himself? Right? Why doesn't he just bring us back to heaven and let us join in the dance? But he says, I ask, Father, not that you take them out of the world, in verse 15, but that you protect them in the world. Right? He leaves us in the world for a very particular purpose, for a very concrete reason. Look at what he says in verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. So that the world may know that you sent, them, sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the plan of God is this, that God would reconcile his people to himself, reconcile his people to one another across all of the barriers that typically divide the human family. And the rest of the world, the rest of the cities in which these people live their lives would look and say, 
in their union, in their unity, we see the reconciling power of Christ. There must be something true about this message of reconciliation because of the oneness that we see lived and demonstrated in the followers of Jesus. Paul said in, our, in the, a passage that we read early in, earlier in the service, right, that God has reconciled us to, the, to himself in the cross and then left us a ministry of reconciliation. You know, I saw this uh, in powerful action uh, in a story that I read this week about a man named Lowell Ivey. Uh, Ivey was, uh, ser- he's out now, but he served a 17-year prison term uh, for armed robbery, uh, among other things. He was, uh, he was in the army, uh, became addicted to drugs, became deal- a dealer of drugs, uh, went AWOL from the army, started robbing convenience stores with some friends, got caught, and spent 17 years, 17 years in a Texas penitentiary. And the way he tells the story is that when he got into this prison, uh, he realized quickly that it was a divided place and that if you were going to survive, you had to find a crew to run with. And in that prison, it was particularly divided up between the white inmates and the black inmates. And so pretty quickly, he fell in with a white supremacist gang. He has the tattoos up and down his arm to, to show this decision that he made. And over the years, he grew harder and harder in his convictions in that area. One night, he uh, lunged at another inmate uh, with an improvised knife. He was caught by the prison guards, thankfully, before he killed anyone, and he was placed in solitary confinement for the next 10 years. Over the course of those 10 years, he was allowed to listen to a radio, and he started to listen to some radio preachers. And he began to feel guilt in his heart about the decisions that he had made. He began to feel conviction in his heart, yes, about all of the decisions, the drugs, the, the, the robbery, but particularly around this area of the racist that he had grown into. He began to feel conviction, and so wanting to begin to learn more and to grow more in that, he said, I went to the one place in the prison where white inmates and black inmates were together. He said the one place in the prison that wasn't segregated by race was the chapel service. And so he went and he began to build friendships and he began to experience reconciliation. God eventually, through that experience, converted his heart. He became a Christian. He began to build Christian brotherhood uh, with other African-American Christians and white Christians together because he said in the chapel was the only non-segregated moment in the entire life of that prison. You know, if you had gone up uh, to a first century Greek Uh, living in one of the cities of Asia Minor or Palestine. They might easily have said, you know what, the one place in our city that's not segregated Jew and Gentile are these new churches that have sprung up around the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? The, the, The cross has always had a power for reconciling across racial lines, across economic lines, across cultural lines, even across the lines of doctrine. Right, that that Jesus' prayer here is that Christians would be united. That Christians would be united among all those things that we all know that churches divide over. Right? That we divide over arguments, we divide over class, we divide over culture and race. I mean, this is a big deal to Jesus. I think we often treat it like it's an optional add-on in the Christian life. Right? That, yeah, you know, the main thing is about, you know, you go to church, you pray, you do that stuff. It doesn't really matter 
how we live our lives relationally and whether or not our relationships and our church looks and acts just like us. But Jesus, on the night before he went to be arrested and die, prayed for the unity of the church. Something that we treat as, as a luxury. We all know how quickly churches divide. And you know why division in the church is such a big deal to Jesus? Because when the church doesn't live in unity, it tells a lie to the world about what the gospel is and what it means. Right? I had a, I had a counseling professor tell me that that's the, the reason God hates divorce, and the scriptures say he does, is because it tells a lie about what he's like and what the covenant is like and what his, what his unconditional love is like. In the same way, he hates divorce in the church, the, the, the division of churches, because it tells a lie about the message of the gospel. That when we love one another, when we persevere in relationship, persevere in mission, push through the awkwardness that pushes us apart from each other, it tells a story to the world about the reconciling power of the cross. Let's pray that that story, that that music would be heard in this church and in our streets. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we lament that so often this isn't our story. We lament that so often we choose uh, prejudice and division, suspicion over unity. So often we choose to keep our distance rather than to draw near to one another. And so, Lord, I pray that as we are drawn in uh, to your life, as we're drawn in to union and unity with you, that into that fellowship we would also uh, gather our brothers and sisters, that together we would hear the music and dance together, that together, uh, sometimes awkwardly, we would move together in love and unity, deferring to one another, willing to become less so that others may be greater. Lord, we pray that uh, the song and the music of the gospel, the dance of the gospel, would be seen and heard uh, in this church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.